So we continue in what, we, what we've been doing. Exodus Ten Commandments, right? Exodus and Ten Commandments. Good. Um, so we continue this morning, but I'm, I'm actually not going to read the scripture till the end of the sermon today. And it's actually coming not from Exodus, but from Revelation. And so I'm going to I'm going to save that up. It's a it's pretty visually striking passage. And I want you to see where we're going. Um, of course, after we come and we confess our sins, after the people were led through um, the waters and Pharaoh's armies were swallowed up, they get to the other side and the people sing praise to God, just like the choir sang praise to God. And then as the people wander in the wilderness, they're fed with manna, uh, with the bread that comes down from heaven. So we're turning to the scriptures and eventually we're coming this morning to the table. Now, we have been trying to go a bit deeper in the commandments, not just a list of rules that we can read pretty quickly or that we can engrave on tablets of stone, as wonderful as that can be, like they are on the square right outside our church. But more importantly, we're, we're hoping to have these engraved upon our hearts, which is the promise of God in the giving of the Spirit, that God's law will be written on our, on our hearts. And so we're going to meditate upon that a little bit, upon these commandments. And what are we doing? Can you do the motions with me? We're broadening, internalizing, and reversing the commandments. So that's one way in. As you can just pick one, broaden it, internalize, and reverse it. Um, we also started with the first commandment and said, you shall have no other gods before me. And then we realized that two through ten actually help us understand how do we keep that first one. Well, we can skip to the other end. We read them all the way through. We come to uh, the tenth commandment, do not covet. We realize that if the law is all about loving God and loving neighbor, then coveting what our neighbor has or what God has is how you break all the commandments. So if we want to keep the rest of them, we can we cannot covet what our neighbor has or what rightfully belongs to God, and we can keep the commandments. Last week, I'm sorry I've gotten this backwards, but you know I drew the arch for you, right? And so we started with one over here. And we had commandments one, two, three, and four. And the first four are about primarily our relationship with God. And so the fourth one is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And that fourth one sort of encapsulates, makes room for the keeping of the first three in relation to God. On the other side, we went, so four, five, and six. And then six through ten over here are all about relationship with our neighbors, right? And so... Uh, the sixth commandment, do not murder, uh, enables us to keep the rest of them. Instead of trying to take the life of others, no, we try to build up and to give life to others. And then there was sort of the crowning one at the top, honor thy father and mother, which pertains perhaps to both sides of those commandments. And so we've tried, basically what I'm showing you is the structure of the commandments and looking at it from different vantages and seeing actually how they work together and they paint a picture of a whole and, and, and a life that lives out of and from and in those commandments is one that gives glory to God, that loves God, and that loves neighbor. And that, Jesus said, is the whole of the law right there. Uh, so this morning we're jumping in. On the seventh commandment, I was going to do the last four this morning, seven through ten. And uh, I don't always write these out, but um, 
I wrote this one out, and I got started, and I didn't get any further than the seventh one. So <laughs> you have the seventh commandment this morning, and I guess in the next week we're going to have to cover the last three. Um, this morning, we'll hear about the command not to commit adultery. And I hope that maybe, in about the next two or three seconds, you can get past the possible awkwardness or discomfort of that topic uh, to understand that marital faithfulness actually points us beyond itself, far beyond itself, even into the depths of God's relationship with us. And because God is faithful to us, those he calls his bride, so also are we called to be faithful. Uh, and this faithfulness, far from being a simple rule, actually serves in the end to call people to a heavenly kind of existence. That's why we're going to Revelation at the end of this. Whose beauty is made known most fully in the eternal light that shines forth from the face of Jesus Christ, the heavenly bridegroom who beckons us to his great banquet table of celebration. So as we enter in this morning, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, the great bridegroom who remains ever faithful to your church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's start with the easy part. Um, we'll begin with, with adultery. What does God say about it? Don't do it. Okay, now we got that out of the way. Don't do it. Um, and now let's go a little deeper. Uh, you know, marriage is one of the most foundational realities giving life to the world. And it functions in a few particular ways. And these aren't exhaustive, but these are perhaps primary. Um, the purpose, let's just think about marriage generally, is to bear witness to the union of love that humanity is called to experience with God. It is also meant to show forth the freedom of unity amidst difference that is God's purpose between men and women. Um, if you begin to think about the creation story, you'll see that God creates the Adam, which means like the human being or the, the earth human, Adam is like earth, and God breathes into it the breath of life. So God takes and creates Adam in his image. But after a while, he said, it is not good that the human being should be alone. And so he causes Adam to fall asleep. Looks like a death. He takes from the side of the human being a rib and forms it into who? Eve. And you've got Adam and Eve now, a man and a woman created in God's image. And then, these, so we had a single unity, now we have multiplicity. But in this multiplicity, the man and the woman are called to come back together in a way that serves now a higher purpose. Because in doing so, they begin to image the God in whose image they're made. How? God makes human beings in his image. And then what happens? A man and a woman can make a child in their image, right? That's part of how we reflect who God is. And so that's kind of the third piece, uh, to show forth the unity in the midst of difference capable, right, between men and women, 
But also God gives this command to fill the earth and to subdue it, offering all of it up to God. And so this, this comes to like, I mean, this is the middle of Exodus, but this is really foundation for how the whole world takes shape. Now, uh, not everyone is called to be married, right? And the Apostle Paul even advises Christians that to abstain from marriage is his preference for them. That's in the Bible. Because it allows them to be completely devoted to God and not have to worry about your spouse's socks that are laying in the floor and be distracted by things, right? Sorry, I stepped on any toes there. Um, but one not need be married to participate in the committing of adultery, right? Which is the breaking of the covenant promise made between a husband and wife. And so when one takes a step back and sees the big picture, uh, it's not hard to see why this commandment is given. You know, God's made us for faithfulness, and Christian marriage in particular is meant to be a sign and a symbol of God's relationship with us. That's how it works. And when the sanctity of that relationship is broken, it's, it's, it's obvious all, all kinds of pain and hurt and de destruction and distress occur. It leads to, to a breakdown of sorts. And I'm sure that almost all of us in this room, in some way or another, has had your life or the life of someone that you love affected in some way by this. And so, of course, you know the kind of, the kind of hurt uh, that emerges from such a breakdown. And so, for the sake of argument, let's, let's push a little further. Can you imagine, then, a society in which adultery or, or infidelity is the norm? That's just what happens everywhere. And where the pain and the hardship of, of these kind of uh, breakdowns touches everyone and everything. Imagine a, society, a group of people like that. But then, if you could imagine the, the opposite of this, could you imagine uh, or picture someone, maybe that you know, there have been a few folks in this church who've been married 60, 70, 75 years and whose marriage for you has been a, a model of steadfastness and commitment through good and bad. What if a society, what if a whole group of people was shaped by that kind of love and security and commitment? Can you see the obvious difference of where those two kinds of groups would end up? Um, again, that's just to say that these commandments God gives are for our good. It's not so we can feel guilty or something. Um, it's so that we can live in a way that is beautiful and wonderful and full of life. Let's go one step further. You remember that Jesus takes this commandment even beyond where Moses does. Saying in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, saying in the Sermon on the Mount that it is not only our outward actions that are important, but also the motivations of our hearts. Remember what Jesus said about this. He said, even to look at another inappropriately is to commit adultery in your heart, at which point everyone just got punched in the stomach, and now we all recognize that we need forgiveness. We all need repentance. This commandment isn't just for your neighbor or the other person that you happen to know, but this is for you. <coughs> so, where should we find a better way? Um, maybe we can begin to find it by going all the way back to one of these Old Testament books written by Hosea, the prophet. You remember this prophet? Um, he prophesied during a dark time in the northern kingdom. Uh, just before it fell. And God's charge to him was, 
uh, a challenging one. God called um, Hosea to embody what the people's relationship with God had become. To, to act it out in such a way that God's people could, on a very visceral level, experience the breakdown of their own covenant with God, the ways that they had actually been unfaithful. Do you remember what Hosea had to do? He had to marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him and to have children whose names would speak to the havoc wrought by that broken covenant. So that Israel would in fact see how they had become like Hosea's spouse. Unfaithful to God. And so in, in seeing that, they could also see how their offspring, how the fruit of their lives had actually developed or devolved by their turning away. Uh, they were breaking the commandments. Not just this one, but others. Worshiping the god Baal was primary among them, who demanded of them human sacrifice. That's how bad it had gotten. And so Israel, in the book of Hosea, who is the unfaithful spouse, was guilty of breaking covenant with God. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about your own particular sins as a form of adultery against God. That might reframe things for you a little. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Now, here's the even more incredible assumption that underlies that. The incredible fact that God wants for you, in part, to understand his relationship to you and your relationship with him as a marriage. As a covenant marriage, wherein God promises to you that he will always be faithful to you. And now we begin to see a little bit uh, further. So, Hosea embodied God's relationship with the people so that the people could see that they were the unfaithful spouse. But then another prophet comes. Jesus. And Jesus embodies for us God's faithfulness to us, which never fails. You see how it works? Um, God came in Christ to do the same thing, to reveal to us His unending faithfulness to you. So faithful that he will even die for you so that you, his spouse, might live. Um, in, bec in becoming human and keeping these commandments faithfully, uh, Christ never breaks covenant with God, with us. It's why the New Testament consistently describes him as our bridegroom. You ever notice that? I mean, I don't, and particularly for men, what do we, what do, we do with, with that? To be understood as the church together, bound together, as the bride of Christ. So maybe you haven't thought about that too much. But when you begin to think about how marriage works, how a covenant promise is made, um, you see that there's a lot of depth here. What I want you to see is that if you are looking for redemption this morning, if you are looking for forgiveness this morning, um, if you are looking for a more faithful Savior, if you are looking for one who will never break covenant with you because you know what it's like for that to happen, if you're looking for one who will never break covenant with you even to the point of death, 
if you're looking for one who can keep God's commandments because you know you have not, then look no further. See the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender then to his love. Say yes to him. Say I do to him. Say I will to him. The one who promises you all of that and more in return. So I want you to begin to see how this commandment goes back and forward and all comes together in Christ. I want you to see how that relates to you personally in the fact that you are also culpable in this one, but that you have a Savior who can deliver you. But then not just personally, I also want you to see how collectively together this applies to us. What, what positively then begins to happen when we respond to this commandment framed in the negative, thou shalt not. See, the reality is that when the church honors those who are married, when husbands love their wives like Christ loves the church, giving up their lives for her and sacrificing their lives for them, picking up the socks when you're asked. I was actually preaching to myself on that one from this week. And when wives love their husbands as the church is called to love Christ, eager to see them receive honor and even glory, then many spiritual children are produced. Many spiritual fruits emerge. And likewise, when the church looks to Christ as our bridegroom, the one to whom we are called to live in love and faithfulness and whoever remains faithful to us, we will discover that the boundaries of covenant faithfulness, the boundaries are actually not restrictive. The commandments aren't restrictive. Primarily, no, in reality, keeping faith with Christ and one another is what opens to us the whole wide country of salvation. That space where the air is clear and the skies are blue, the realm where God fills all in all, and we know ever deeper union with the Lord who made heaven and earth and us in his image. When we live from Christ's faithfulness on our behalf, when we keep the commandments, we actually discover freedom. Freedom to be, freedom to love, freedom to know who we truly are and who we've been made to be. Um, in keeping the commandments, Christ comes alive in us and we live in him. In keeping the commandments, we discover also an invitation to this table. Uh, an invitation to arrive as a bride adorned for her husband who is ever faithful. So now I'm going to skip to Revelation and give you, this is a very visual description. I want you to try to picture it. See these things in your mind. Because when the church is faithful, this is what begins to emerge. Then one of the seven angels spoke to me, John, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So he says, come, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he shows him what? The holy city of Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. Shows him a society, a group. The city had the glory of God. Its radiance was like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. 
It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates were made with a single pearl. Heard of the pearly gates? Here it is. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable and false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then, after seeing the river of the water of life, which flowed there, bright as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and the Lamb, flowing through the streets of the city, giving water to the tree of life, which bears twelve kinds of fruit and whose leaves were for the healing of the nations, John says that there, there will no longer be anything that is accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be upon their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they'll need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Isn't it fascinating to consider, to recognize that when John gets a glimpse of the wife of Christ, the bride of Christ is pictured as a city. As all of those people who belong to God from all of the nations, living in this place of unsurpassable beauty, with gates of pearl and streets of gold, it is a new society, it is a new community, it is a holy and a perfected people now. That is what the keeping of the commandments is about. If you need a vision for what might happen, if, what is the destination of all this? Here's the vision. This is what covenant faithfulness to God and your marriage to God is about. This is what covenant faithfulness to marriage with your spouse is about. It is about our living in such a way right here and right now that when people encounter us, the bride of Christ, they get at least a glimpse of that heavenly city so that they too might be overcome by its beauty and its love and its righteousness. Our call is to live in such a way that our lives speak together the same beckoning words of love that John hears when he sees the faithful city. He heard this. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, let the one who desires take the water of life without price, because he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is what John hears. The groom whose faithfulness, even unto death, transforms the world and makes us a spotless bride whose robes have been dipped in the blood of the life-giving lamb. That's what the commandments are about. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.